Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 619 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Joining me on the show today is my guest, Steve DeMamil. Steve is joining me all the way from Australia, and he's the author of a new book called The Mongrel Method, Sales and Marketing for the New Breed of Buyers. In this case, the mongrel, meaning that a purely sales approach to capturing customers or a purely marketing approach to capturing leads you know, isn't, isn't going to be successful for capturing the new leads and new customers that you need, that a certain blending of the two is, is required. Now, this in itself, that we need to have both sales and marketing working together uh, to optimize our business probably isn't news to any of us, but Steve has a unique perspective on the blend of the two of sales and marketing that he advocates in his book that we're going to talk about. Because, for instance, you know, he replaces this idea of personas that the marketing people create with a customer intent model. And we're hearing more and more about customer intent. And, uh, you know, in this case, customer intent is talking about those who have shown signs of having researched and invested the time to show they're ready to take action. You know, how we focus on those who have already started their buying journey. And interestingly, in the book, he also talks about how you can track intent not only online, but also offline as well. And we're going to jump into that in this conversation. So again, stick around. This is really interesting stuff today. If you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com forward slash 619. Now, before I talk with Steve, let me remind you again that if you haven't signed up to receive my weekly newsletter, then you are missing out. I save some of my absolutely best advice about sales, about leadership, marketing, relationships, resilience, and character for my subscribers. So visit andypaul.com right there on the homepage, right below the fold. You'll see a form you can fill out to subscribe to the newsletter. All right. Thank you for that. So let's jump into it right now. Steve DeMamil, welcome to Accelerate. Andy, great to be with you. And I hope I didn't butcher your name too badly. (laughs) No, got that absolutely right. Oh, perfect. All right. I'm ahead of the game. Okay. Standard question I ask most of my guests these days as they come on the show, and this is, in your opinion, what's the single biggest challenge that's facing sales reps today? Yeah, it's it's working out who is responsible for the dis- purchasing decision. So often the s- salespeople are told to go looking for the decision maker and it's not a individual. Today, it's a group of people. There is a process involved. So the real question is, 
how the decision is being made. And if salespeople are going through looking for a process, is there a tender? Is there a request for a proposal? What is that selection criteria? And then the individuals involved and what matters to them. You know, why why are we now making just this purchasing decision? Why haven't we done it before? What were those roadblocks before? They're key questions that need to be answered today when the procurement side is far more complex. Okay. All right. Well, I think we're going to come back to that topic a little bit, a little bit later on. So first of all, you've written a book called the Mong- <laughs> one of the most cleverly named sales books, The Mongrel Method, Sales yep. and Marketing for the New Breed of Buyers. And uh, yeah, clever use of dog, <laughs> dog imagery throughout the whole thing. So uh, why a mongrel? Yeah, because look, I, it's been discussed on your show a number of times, this idea that sales and marketing need to come together. It's a blend. So a mongrel mutt is a blend of breeds. Mm-hmm. And, and today, the sales approach, the go-to-market strategy needs to be a blend of both sales and marketing. It can't be a pure bread. It can't be a single approach. It's got to be this mixed approach that involves sales and marketing. So, a, a question for you is: is and just in sort of general terms, not related to your book, but I mean, are we getting to the point where we're sort of beaten to death this idea of a you know that buyers are so different than they were before? I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I understand that processes are different, right? We see that all the time, but yep. people are still people. Yeah, I mean, so sometimes I think sometimes I think people get confused when they hear you know a new breed of buyers. They think, well, people are thinking differently than they did ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. And I, I, I will make sure <laughs> that people are clear. I don't think that they've changed how they arrive at decisions, but the process before that certainly has changed. Yeah, and that's the focus. It has to be about understanding that process, and you know. Uh, a lot of stuff is done by committees and groups and particularly in a B2B world, there's often a project approach to these decision makers. And and we certainly see that's written about, you know, widely. Uh, yep. And by the other hand, there's also a lot of people that say, well, heck, I sold Enterprise for, you know, 20 years ago and we had committees back then. So... Yeah, you know, in your research and your experience, you know what is what have you found that's that's different about sort of the group of stakeholders today versus the group of stakeholders that might have existed before? Well, they're far more educated today, so there's a lot more discipline and knowledge inside that procurement group, mm-hmm. and it's been discussed on your show numerous times previously about the buying journey being well underway by the by the time a salesperson becomes involved. <laughs> Which, so, which, not, which not everybody agrees with, by the way, but as I'm sure you're aware, it's, it's, that's still a matter of controversy. Right. Yeah. Okay. I haven't had a lot of pushback on that before, but. Oh, I, I mean, I've, I, I agree with that. I mean, I've written about it, but I've, I've had people push back on it. I mean, but it's, it's one of those things where like a lot of things in sales, we sort of take these as articles of faith and, and people are able to argue rationally both directions. But anyway, yes, I agree with you. 
Right. Yeah, so certainly in a business environment, a B2B environment, it's a group decision. The buyer as well along the way, or they've, there certainly is a group, they've done lots of research, they have a bias, they have an opinion about what the solution looks like. It's, I think, for an, at an individual level or the consumer level, there's probably not a lot change around that. There's, you know, in low involvement decisions, there's still that emotional, uh, you know, spontaneous stuff that goes on. Um, but certainly in the business environment, uh, you're dealing with a far more informed and opinionated consumer. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> so I, I want to ask about a quote in the book. So, because I wasn't sure I understood, I didn't know whether I was, should feel good about myself or or uh, obsolete. So you write that <laughs> that in most industries, anyone who has more than 15 years of experience is considered to know their stuff. In sales and marketing, however, if you have more than 10 years of experience, it is of limited value. So, so you meaning if your experience is more than 10 years old, it's no longer relevant? I'm talking about the change that's happened in the last 10 years, the, the informed buyer, yeah. where the salesperson is no longer the reference point for a lot of information. Ah, you, okay, you turn, got it, got it, okay. Yep, yep, yep. All right, well, I thought you were just saying, yeah, anybody that had more than 10 years of experience were dinosaurs and therefore no longer <laughs> useful. And, well, my kids would tell you that. Well, I'm sure, yeah, mine, <laughs> mine would as well, but... Um, of course, one's on the payroll now, so I don't think he says that quite as much as he did before. <laughs> so, um, okay, well, that makes sense. All right, I was, I was going to say, I was going to head a different direction with the questioning if that was the case. Uh, yeah, so, okay, so let's sort of move forward. So, you know, what, you know, again, part of what I sort of got the impression from reading the book is, is that, you know, we need to put more emphasis on, on, Starting to build that relationship before we actually contact the customer. And you you referenced the Forbes yeah. article about all the great number of unanswered phone calls and so on. Um, and yet we still have, uh, increasingly, in you know large segments of of inside sales teams, regardless of what industry they're in, is is yeah, you know, still a lot of outbound dialing, a lot of cold calling. Um, yeah. And so your perspective is. That's not what you'd advocate. No, well, it, it's really a lottery. You know, for most of those outbound cold calling scenarios, we're talking single-digit results in terms of we're generating leads, getting a sale. Where, and it's also demoralising for that person making the call. They become accustomed to not expecting to get a lead, to get a sale, and so that's counterproductive. I think their effort is better spent dealing with the questions that the customer would ordinarily ask and making that good content and, and attracting customers to them. So more of an, an inbound marketing approach. Absolutely, yep. Yeah, it's interesting because you know, even companies like um, you know, HubSpot that pioneered a lot of sort of the inbound or at least they're given credit for pioneering a lot of the yep. inbound methodology, have outbound sales teams. They do, but they they do it based on a, a warmish lead. I've been a HubSpot customer and a big fan of their 
solution. But they're making that outbound call based on a degree of interaction with their contact. You've shown some sort of interest. Um, There's a conversation for them to uh, pick up and run with. Yeah, you mentioned in the book, do you think that that, um, sort of client segmentation and market segmentation personas are sort of on their way out being replaced by, by customer intent? I mean, do you see those mutually exclusive? Because, you know, I can just tell from conversations I've had with you know companies I consider somewhat leading edge in, in sales marketing and sales marketing alignment, account-based sales, that, that you know, the segmentation personas are still pretty front and center for them. Yeah, and I see that as a big issue in a number of companies, that it's all about personas and segmentation. Uh, I think the first focus should be on in customer intent. So those who have shown signs that they've invested the time, they've done some research and you know spent some money, they've done something that says they're ready to take action. Where personas and segmentation, all they do is tell you the total addressable market. It, the focus really needs to be on attracting those who are, are ready to make a decision, who, who have started the buying journey. Mm. And often they just get forgotten about. So if you, those who are ready to go, they've essentially self-qualified. They've identified the pain. They're, it's now at the top of the list to address that issue. Unless you're looking at customer intent, you tend to neglect those and you drop those in the same bucket as anybody who one day might want to take action on the particular issue that you can solve. And intent measured by something more than, you know, let's say a lead scoring algorithm that you might have in your marketing automation system or you know, one that you run independently or, or how are you measuring intent? Yeah, so I've split it up into um, resources and time. So when I, uh, resources, so it's in, in some sort of investment. So the customer needs to be invested in it. Are they doing something that suggests they're um, committed to solving this problem? Are they buying some sort of aligned product or yeah, something that helps them get this benefit? So if you were looking to, uh, I don't know, install a new kitchen, Mm-hmm. Had you had you done the required work to allow that to happen, if you're doing some sort of home renovation, had you invested in getting the plans drawn up, ha- have you spent time looking at options, all of those sort of things that are real indicators that you're you're ready to go. You, this is the number one priority for you. So, and Google over the last eighteen months has actually invested a lot of their effort and a lot of their metrics now about what people are doing, not what people are researching. So uh, Google Beacons and Eddystone, all of that development work is about tracking a customer who's doing something, um, not just browsing online. Well, when you say doing something, so meaning... Instead of just consuming the content from the seller, what they're doing is, as you said, you know, they might be going to websites. We'll take the kitchen example. You know, they might be going to websites of 
kitchen contractors, right? Or yep. and so tracking that activity online is is what adds to the the overall picture of intent, as opposed to just a your I would say proprietary, but proprietary to your company lead scoring system that says, look, this is how they're continuing to engage with our content, and it's all about our content, and at some point we'll move them from being an MQL to an SQL and we'll boot that over to sales. What you're saying is you have to look at a, a broader, more holistic picture of what the customer is doing online, not just on your site. That, that's right, and also offline. So have they gone to a showroom? Have they gone to some well, how, exhibition? How yeah. would you know they're offline? Well, if, if you're running a retail chain, and you've got a beacon installation, you can be tracking that sort of um, activity. Are they making small purchases in store that would indicate they're looking at a larger purchase? That sort of thing needs to be captured and measured as part of looking at customer intent. Okay. So that's interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, that's a fairly significant technical investment you know, investment in technology is, is that really something you know small B2B sellers, mid-sized B2B sellers could really invest in? If they're running some sort of loyalty program, it's not that complicated. If they've got some sort of capture of what's happening online, for a few hundred dollars, they can be taking it offline. Beacons are a relatively easy install. Um, yeah, there is, there are a cheap uh, solution because all the beacon is doing is putting a signal out and then your application, your loyalty program, those sort of things are just capturing the presence of the phone in, a, in an area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I was just trying to think about it from a business-to-business sales standpoint. I mean, you know, that that offline behavior is much harder to, to track. I mean, retail-based, got it with the beacon, Eddystone compatibility, all that but uh, how about the B two B space? I mean, how do you how do you really track that offline intent? Yeah, it's hard to to track. It certainly needs to be part of the sales qualification piece, and the salespeople need to be asking those questions. You know, have you done the prerequisite things? Have you shown you know real indication, or shown a real indication that you're heading down this path? Well, I think that's a an interesting point because it's rarely talked about in the context of what are sort of steps that people should go through in the discovery process. Salespeople should go through in the discovery process, and because oftentimes it just talks about yeah, let's talk about requirements, da 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 da. But then they don't often say yeah, well, hey, what we're selling you, or say even say to themselves, what we're selling to you is part of a bigger solution or fits into your your business in a bigger way. So what are the other prerequisites? that you need to do to be ready for us to sell this to you, for you to implement what we're going to sell to you. And I agree, that that doesn't get asked hardly enough. Yeah, because it's often a bit of a red flag if these things aren't being done by the customer. And people tend, uh, salespeople tend to turn a bit of a blind eye to it because it can kill a deal off, but you're better off identifying those very early upfront and understanding that, look, I'm never going to close a deal unless the customer d- takes these three steps in advance. And that needs to be a, an important part of the qualification process. And f- for me, if 
I'm selling to a customer and, and before they can get a benefit out of my solution, they need to undertake some sort of activity, spend some sort of money. That's the, one of the very first questions that I ask and because it's a very relevant qualification point. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And it, to your point, it's, it's not asked nearly enough. I mean, people don't focus on mm. that because they're so focused just on their solution as opposed to thinking of their solution as part of a larger you know, ecosystem of, uh, of parts and pieces that make the whole solution up. Um, interesting. Yeah. So, and I um, think at that, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say at that point, if those things aren't being done or, or haven't been done, or there's a realization by the customer that they need to take these prior steps. At that point, I think it should be handed back to marketing and marketing should be assisting the customer through that process because uh, some of those things might wash out as objections and marketing could be answering some of those things. And because otherwise, for a lot of sales organizations, they realize, well, this customer isn't qualified and they drop out of the funnel. That's the end of them. I argued that, in fact, if the customers identify the problem, the benefit they're looking to derive, but they're awakening to the fact they need to take some prior steps or things have to be done beforehand, they're better off going back to marketing and drop and drop back into the marketing bucket so marketing can continue to nurture that lead. They can... You know, help deal with some of those objections, and then in due course, they'll get handed back over to sales. True, though it seems like in that situation, though sales plays a big role in surfacing what those additional steps are. I mean, I think that that you know, in reading your book, that the one of the points that I liked was, among others, is, is that um, not to you think there's only one is is that you talk about this need to be able to gather hard evidence. Yep. And for the for the customers, basically their business case, right? I mean, they need to be able to display and, and understand what their business case is to make the investment that your product represents. And as you said, the benefit for insisting on the hard evidence is that then exposes you to additional stakeholders, the people that have that evidence that aren't necessarily the people you're speaking with, right? Um, and it seems like the same thing would be true with this scenario laid out where, yeah, there are precursor steps that exist that the customer needs to take. I mean, let's say they're trying to buy a, you know, water purification system from you, commercial water water purification, but they haven't, you know, started con- leveling the land that it needs to sit on, right? When you construct it, or you know, they haven't uh, gotten the city permits to be able to to install it. Uh, it seems like that sort of does the That's same it. thing. Is understanding who those people are help you really get exposure to the additional stakeholders involved in that decision. So. In essence, you know, the deeper you go on discovery, the more likely you are to come across people that need to contribute data or information to the discovery. They, by definition, are stakeholders in the decision. Yeah, it's those prerequisite steps and how that happens and who's involved. Yeah, that's a, certainly a big part of the qualification process. And it's important that the salesperson understands what role that particular person is playing in that purchasing decision? Mm-hmm. What influence? Yep. What influences them? What benefit them as a, an individual they're looking to get out of the purchase? Well, and I also, I, and I've 
written about this and as well as others have, but it's it's yeah, if you're not doing that extra deep dive, you know, asking for you said the hard evidence, asking, you know, the hey, what else can you tell me about that? Uh questions, then as you describe in the book, is you know, salespeople fall into this trap of just sort of accepting what the customer tells them. You know, sort of the, yeah. the superficial answer. And it's funny, I, I shock people. I <laughs> what I tell them is that yeah, don't don't take the customer at face value when you're in these discovery discussions because the first answer is rarely the real answer. Well, exactly right. I see it time and time again. I think most sales people have dealt with a scenario where they think they've got a red-hot lead, it's all progressing, and suddenly it goes quiet and stalls and for some reason doesn't advance. And it's because there are other stakeholders who uh, it's not their number one priority. They see some other roadblock. There's something else going on in the background that the salesperson hasn't uncovered. Yet, had the salesperson tested the response they've got, they've been digging for hard evidence. A lot of those things flush out very early in the piece, and they save themselves a whole bunch of time and effort uh, in you know. In be- yeah, having invested in a uh, opportunity that isn't really qualified at this point, there's some work on the customer side that needs mm. to happen beforehand. Well, I think that that this really though plays into what you you talked about a little bit later in the book is that, and you had a, a good phrase which I I liked, which was yeah, you know, there's a tendency for salespeople to look at their clients as a commodity instead of a person, and. And I think it's a great line because I think this is what happens in too many cases and serves part of the reason why things don't get uncovered, you know, really important facts don't get uncovered or important intent or motivations don't get uncovered during discoveries because salespeople are saying, well, this this customer is just like every other customer I deal with. And therefore, if I ask question A, I'm going to get answer A. And if I ask question B, I'm going to get answer B. And they're sort of, instead of listening to the answer, they're looking and anticipating the next question they're going to ask. And to me, this is, this is you know, one of the real core, core issues we have in sales is you know, approaching everybody as a unique individual. Yeah. You know, and those reasons why they're making this buying decision, they're all very different. Even, and it's often the salesperson that commoditizes their own product because they think they've seen it all before. They know the response. They get, they're about yeah. to get, and they just go into this autopilot. And you often hear salespeople go, oh, we're, you know, we're in a commoditized market. Well, a lot of salespeople have put themselves there because <laughs> they're not really listening to what, the, what particular issue the customer is looking to solve. Well, I think that you also have the sort of the inverse. What you talk about is in those scenarios is not only then do salespeople look at their clients as a commodity, so too the, the clients look at and buyers look at the salespeople as commodities as well. And yeah, and that that that's a huge issue. You know, we talk about sales differentiation all the time, but I, you bring up an interesting sort of well, at least for me, it triggered in my mind a way to perspective to look at it is that you know to be. You know, to have the customer be interested in you, you have to be interesting to them. Yeah, and and, and, often and, often, and interested in them. Yeah. So, what's their particular unique situation? 
And to avoid that brush off, I say to salespeople, you know, what unique information do you hold? What experiences that have you had that's of value to the customer? Can you give the customer a case study about you know, common traps where these things fall over? You know, those sort of things that aren't in the public domain. And if mm. you can create create that knowledge gap, give the customer some insight that you've seen where this has gone wrong before, you've seen other benefits the customers d- derived. And if you can deliver value that way, suddenly as a salesperson, you're no longer the commodity. You actually hold some information that's of value to the customer and they're more likely then to engage in a conversation with you and explore what they're looking to do with you, you know, mm-hmm. all going and, and essentially going back to the pre-Google uh, days where you know, suddenly, hey, the salesperson has some information that is some value to me that will give me some insights that I wouldn't ordinarily get just searching online. Right. Well, and lastly, I mean, in just a couple minutes we have left is is – I think a, a key thing you bring up, which I I love talking about, I think it's so important, and, and I see very few professionals in sales do this, is start with the end in mind and start and work backwards, right? So we're, yep. you know, <laughs> you talk about in very pragmatic terms in terms of, you know, if the customer's going to have the system up and running by a certain date, what decisions need to be made by whom and by when, and so on, what processes need to be in place, which play into the earlier discussions we had talked about you need to have with the uh, with the buyer but i think it's also you know you extend that as well and your your questioning to them is and you know what is your life going to look like a year from now right i mean not just what are the mechanics but also i think you have to involve that sort of emotional aspect of it is okay if you're using our service you're using our solution our system you know what does life look like for you at that point you know, what's your day look like? What is your, you know, top line or bottom line or whatever the key metrics are that they're going to get their ROI on and have that conversation and work it into the one that you talk about in terms of the real mechanics about, okay, what are all these, you know, precursor prerequisite decisions have to be made before we, we can even make a decision. Then, you know, you've really visualized as, and you've helped the customer visualize what success looks like. And that, that's a great, great starting point. Yeah, I think that's, you know, in any meeting, you need to be clear with the customer about what decision they want to make, uh, what you're looking for them to make or what you're looking for them to understand. And then certainly, you know, once your solution's been purchased, installed, they're driving the benefit, what that means to them. And if you're taking them on the journey uh, about life post-purchase, a lot of those issues in the way, those roadblocks, those red flags, they all come they all come out. They mm-hmm. just get flushed out naturally in the conversation. Yeah, very good. Well excellent. Well Steve, we've just about run out of time. So tell folks how they can find out more about the book and connect with you. So the book is called So the Mongrel Method. Uh, the website's themongrelmethod.com. Uh Esther Mamuel on Twitter. They'll find certainly find me there. Okay, excellent. Well, again, Steve, thank you very much. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. And friends, thank you for spending this time with us today. Make sure you come back for our next episode of Accelerate 
another incredible guest. And until then, appreciate it. If you go to iTunes or if you listen to this podcast, subscribe, leave us a review. We want to hear what we can do to make this a better experience for you. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.